Welcome to Success Authorities Conversation Street with Leadership Authority Peter Beaumont and with Business Culture Authority Ron Lehman and me, Linda Ruland, Success Authorities Founder. Have you guys observed that specifically in startups where when they when they catch that wave of growth and they start believing their own press clippings that that contributes to the cultural failure peter because they yeah. start seeing themselves as better than because they were able to do this they have no idea why um but they start thinking that we are as great as everybody says and it's yeah. not the business because again entrepreneurs tend to be a little bit more self-centered they they fail because you know, who was the goofball that ran we work the guy that was going to change yeah. the world and he actually just fleeced the company. And um, it's like you, you watch the guy speak one time and again, an older guy like me would go just, I just sat there and went, I don't know how this guy can actually keep an audience entertained with this nonsense. Cause it's so clearly nonsense. Well, I think I, one, one of the problems I've seen with what you described, Craig is that they do fall in love with the idea of growth. They find that they have a capacity for it. But at least in my experience, when when our leaders want to really move forward and charge ahead with that growth and they, they get hungry for more, they forget to backfill. They forget all the other roles and all the other processes that they handled within the organization as they move forward. For example, I worked for... Uh, a firm that was doing something nationally, then they wanted to move into Canada. So it took the leadership out of the country and they very quickly replaced themselves within the organization. But the people who were left there to run the organization didn't necessarily have the same skill set, mindset, or values that the people who started it did. Well, and that's a so Target had that experience when they moved into Canada is that they put so much time and energy trying to replicate their success in Canada without realizing that Canada was a very different market in terms of how people shopped. So they, they, they sunk so much money into Canada at the expense of the U.S. business, not in terms of running the business, but in terms of infusing it with the excitement of promotion and better buying and all these things that Target was known for. And it took them, I think, well, at least 24 months to say, we have to shut down Canada. It's killing us in multiple ways. A yeah, very difficult decision, I'm sure. Because, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, the fallacy of sunk costs. Well, we've spent 24 months and all yeah. this money. Let's just keep throwing money at it. Yep. So a um, couple of things. First of all, Adam Newman was the guy at um, WeWorks. Okay. Craig. Um. um and and so one of the things, just leveraging off what you said, Craig, about and I think Linda did so, growing in, you know, probably wrong directions, and then the the, the company is what you said, Linda, and the company gets stretched, right? McDonald's had exactly the same issue when they were expanding into Europe. They started instead of having what I would call a military surge, where you take territory. Right. And therefore, your supply chain is well plugged in. They started going randomly into countries. So they went into Holland and then went down into Germany and then, you know, Czech. But 
what happened is their supply chain got completely and utterly stretched because they they run on a distribution system, normally road for obvious reasons, uh, and suddenly plotting distribution warehouses randomly just didn't give them any synergy or efficiency. So they actually closed down a couple of markets and then went back in them later after doing it properly. So that that was a really good example of random growth because it seemed like a good idea to somebody at the time. And it yeah. was fueled at the time mainly by ego, by an individual who just wanted to grow as quickly as possible. Well, and that's the, the Kmart story here in the US, Peter, is that they wanted to be nationwide and didn't think about infrastructure. And what the downfall for Kmart was, they had a centralized buying system and they their goal was minimum number of vendors. So they had like four water vendors for the entire US and they didn't build in inbound or outbound freight into their cost of goods. So stores would make money on a weekly basis until four weeks later they got their uh, supply chain surcharge and profitable stores suddenly realized they were not profitable and things like water, very heavy and relatively cheap items were the downfall because the the freight, they were estimating one number of freight and the number was much higher. And so they had this huge negative impact and it, the the lack of cohesiveness in their infrastructure and supply chain is eventually what did them in. They just couldn't recover because it they were absorbing so much loss on supply chain. And we, the Petco had the same thing on their international, all their imports. They were off by five percentage points on their margin estimates on what inbound freight was because they were estimating that freight going to the DC and that freight only got them to the port. So they're leaving out the inland piece of the freight to go from the port to the DC. And that was one of the first things that when I went to Petco, I fixed because it's like, well, you guys are going to break your back on supply chain because you're estimating at the port and you're delivering at the dock. And so it's that myopic view of we understand the problem and nobody listened to the people that really do understand the problem. Well, I, I, I feel the need to give a positive example. So um, I was just early, writing that down. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I saw what you were writing, Peter, and I stole it. Uh, I, I worked with an organization for probably about 10 or 15 years now. And, um, and it's a, it's a large mining and transportation and construction business and it's privately held. Um, but as they look at their growth strategies, um, one of the things they look at a lot of, you know, they know why they want to do it, but they want to do it in a controlled way. And they're very strategic about, so here's what we want. Here's a, a value that we'd like to uh, either build on or improve the way we do it or whatever it is. And then they look at what's the solution. So is it, um, you know, doing a different kind of process? Is it buying a new quarry? And the one example I was thinking of is what um, they, they were looking at a quarry and it had three or four reasons, uh, not only the rock that was there, but the fact that it was access to a river which is how most of that stuff gets moved around. And it connected quickly to some of their other businesses. Um, 
But the other factor, and this is kind of what I got involved with, is they wanted to make sure that if they acquired this quarry and the people who work there, that it would be a cultural fit. And or at least what what kind of work are we going to have to do to help them understand our culture? How far are they off? And so I went in and did a lot of interviews and talked to people. And um, but they were thinking of all that before they decided, hey, we're going to get this. Now it turned out to be a great acquisition for them. But every time they've done an acquisition, they've thought about it uh, very carefully. It's always very strategic. It's not growth for growth's sake because they're pretty big as it is, and now it's very focused. So they do all the things that that we've all been talking about. And um, so it can be done. That's the good news. It can be done. Um, the other piece of that that they do very well and I think is important, you mentioned an entrepreneur. Let's just say someone who started a business, and they had a core group of people around them, and they were probably there because of the power of that person who started the business and their vision and passion and the work they were doing. And one of the things that happens as you grow is that um, you lose line of sight with that leader because now there's layers in between you and that person. In the beginning, you know, everybody knew everybody and now there's all these people. And so you start to just, there's a lot of thermal layers between you and the leadership. So unless that here's what we're doing is being communicated um, clearly, it's not. It's different when it gets as as you grow and then continue to grow. And the other piece I always see is when there's a failure to of implementation. It's often because the leaders were thinking about growth for a year, and then they tell everybody it's great, it's going to be great. Well, th- that information just got to those people, and they're supposed to catch up, and they're a year behind. And I think um, I've seen really, uh, I'll use SAP implementation. That's my favorite example. Uh, and and this, is, this is absolutely true, but it may not happen. Uh, that the people who are involved in, in buying or purchasing SAP and selling SAP, none of them are there by the time it gets implemented completely. Um, in that year or two years or whatever it takes. And the people that are left to make it work Aren't are still not sure why are we doing this, and I think that's that's an opportunity to. Uh, but I've also seen those go really well, where they spend a lot of time engaging with everybody, saying, "Here's why we're doing this. Here's what's going to happen," and they keep them in the loop the whole time. And all that stuff about what's in it for me can come up, and all the fears can get handled. And when things change, they they communicate that. But they the the ones that do it well focus a lot of time and energy on that, and probably. Uh, money too, but if you do that at the front end, the back end goes easier. I well, believe. And I, I saw a graphic, and it was on change management, which applies in this in this case, where it talked about just like anything where somebody's got advanced information, they get comfortable with it over a period of time. So let's call it a four month period that the leadership team got comfortable with it. Then you've got the next level down. Well, they started a month after, so they need more time. When you finally get down to that execution piece, by the time the leaders are done and slapping themselves in the back going, hey, we did a great job here, they're just getting the first pieces. And they forget that that's the people that have to be the most excited, the ones that interconnect with the customer or the end user. And so you're, you're absolutely right, Ron, is that people forget that the handoff, it's more of a fumble uh, more often than we want. 
And, yeah. and when you were talking about it, it reminded me of something else that, that I find very compelling that people really can get behind when it's done right is using data to drive decision-making about growth. And in, in two pieces, I, I'm working with a uh, one startup where they were trying to attack four different channels. And that was going into COVID. And the three of the channels shut down during COVID because it just, you know, hospitality, uh, food service, just they just weren't doing anything in colleges and universities. So it was very, very difficult. Well, they, I helped them refocus on retail, but they had no idea how to do it. They were trying to talk to everybody. And I said, you, you can't. There's too many. There's 17,000 retailers in the U.S. You can't talk to them. You got to talk to the ones that matter. And once I kind of showed them and built a, the model that said, here's the people that we want to talk to, because A, high, or high velocity, so they're going to have need of something where they're going to have more waste, and B, they have a propensity for supporting their food service operations in the deli, those are the ones we want to go after. And it reminded me then of years ago when I was doing a private brand relaunch for a company, um, we use syndicated data to understand where were the opportunity gaps between how good we thought we were and where best practitioners in our marketplace were. And that said, that's you can do that by category where you really understand this is where we should be looking to grow because this is where people are accepting of what we want to offer. And Russell Brunson, who is a uh, internet marketing guru, he always talks about um, his dream 100. And it really is, it's fishing where the fish are. He tells people to go find out where their, their target customer is hanging out and go hang out there. Well, it seems really simple until you, you know, it's like, well, why didn't I think of that? Well, you should have, but you didn't. So now follow through and say, okay, where are those people hanging out? They're already spending money to get them interested in stuff around what I want to sell hang out there and there's people all around you that want to buy. Yeah. One of the, you reminded me of something I heard years ago that the, the, the gentleman who invented Callaway uh, golf clubs and, you know, the, the, uh, they were the first ones to come out with the, you know, the driver with the heads, the size of a toaster. Mm -hmm. And he was asked once, I well, still got one. <laughs> I think everyone's got at least one somewhere. <laughs> and there's, you know, the, and he, they said, well, did you do a lot of, you know, market research and customer research? And he said he did, but not the way they would think. He said customers were not clamoring for a golf club with a giant head. That's not what they were climbing. They wanted to hit the ball a long way and hit it straight and not take lessons. That's what they wanted. That was the outcome. And that's what they pitched. He said no one would have ever come up. Uh, no customer would come in and say, hey, I've got an idea. Make a head that's just gigantic. Um, he said so, and I, it always reminded me that there's a ton of data and, and, and less information. And the trick mm -hmm. is, how do you get that to information? And I think that's especially true for businesses today. There's just an avalanche of information or data that that is out there. And I think having some help kind of distilling that down to what's the What's the key stuff that we need to know? In your example, Craig, it's these are the people that we really want to go after as opposed to, you know, spray and pray because we'll just yeah. go after everybody. And um, and I think that's where uh, companies can go right and also go horribly wrong. 
No, you're, you're exactly right. Cause I, the, the data piece has always been a little bit of a challenge because it's really the actionable insight. So I tell them, you know, when we start working with data, we have to turn that data into things we can act upon. So it has to identify, you know, I, you know, you know if you think of Swiffer, uh, nobody wanted it, nobody needed it. Now everybody has to have it. And P&G found out about it by asking people the biggest pain in the backside they had about cleaning. And it was the bending over to dust things that weren't at waist height. Mm-hmm. Well, you put a dust cloth on a stick. Okay. Yeah. Problem solved. <laughs> I just wanted to pull two concepts together that you started with earlier, Craig, and then we're talking about more a little bit lately. And one was you're talking about profit as an outcome. And you're talking about the customers that matter. I mean, I've heard profits discussed at all sorts of different levels. For example, you know, profits in terms of balance sheets, cost cutting, et cetera. And I've also heard of customers being discussed to ad nauseum about a customer perhaps who shouldn't be a customer. So how do you look at those two concepts and really make it the best of both worlds? That's a that's a great question, Lynn, and it's one that I'm actually working on with a client right now, and, and it's a donut company. And uh, they had no idea what it costs to make an individual donut of each variety they sell. So uh, they had no idea how to maximize profitability by giving the customer the maximum variety for the maximum profitability. And now they can do that. Because, you know, if you take one of everything, it doesn't have to be the most expensive one in a product selection. They've got four different types of long johns. Well, you offer a long john that costs the least. You still have the long john as part of the variety. So you can manage the variety to help you manage the profitability. And the better example is probably sugar cookies. They, they make about six different varieties of cookies. And the sugar cookies cost half of what each of the others do less than half in some instances, and they promote them all the same. And it's like, yeah, don't do that. Do something with the sugar cookies because it gives you much more price flexibility to move people up in terms of quantity. So it's, it's teaching people how to work on their business rather than this, I got to make the donuts. And when I first, so they, they wanted to sell what's called the legendary dozen. And when I first did all this, and said, here's what you should be selling. Well, no, but our customers like this. And I said, they like all of them. You've told me time and again, they like all of them. And since you don't know exactly what you sell of any individual, this is a great assortment that gives them one of just about everything, and it maximizes your profitability. So and it, it probably funds uh, continued innovation and development. Yep. Um, well, and that's right. what I've been telling them lately is they're remodeling, Ron, is that you can't just go back to the way you always have done it because your expenses are going to be so much higher. You have to figure out ways to put more money in your own pockets. So don't sell the way they used that you used to sell. Sell in new ways that give you, you cover your base costs by the increased business of doubling your size. By selling these profitable mixes, that's where you go from making X to 1.4 X every year as a business owner. Mm-hmm. And Peter, I did, when I was telling them that, I was thinking of the lifestyle business stuff that, that we had talked about because they, they, they want business to grow without sacrificing. It's like, it's not going to happen that way. 
Uh, so uh, it's funny because that example that you and I talked about a couple of weeks ago, I've got a, um, there's a, there's a, almost a, a case study in this whole growth thing with a company I'm working with at the moment, which is a glazier. And they have the dads wanting to move out of the business and he wants to leave it to the kids. One of them is very much lifestyle, nine to five, works his ass off during the day and will work 50-hour days if necessary, if that's even possible, um, <laughs> which is not, but will work huge numbers as long as he gets his weekend off with the family, very family-oriented. Brilliant, love that. Contrast, other brother, works, will can't even watch the Super Bowl unless he's actually doing stuff on the computer, um, you know, is, 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 is what we used to term a workaholic. And the trying to make these guys understand, first of all, what is it you both want out of the business? And, and is it actually something you can, when your dad's out of the way, can you actually get on? And what are some of the issues that we need to uh, deal with is, is having a huge impact on whether they're going to grow or not. I mean, just that whole dynamic. But the other one is they have never looked, they've always concentrated. And I think, um, it was said maybe by Craig, but uh, I think it was. They're working continually in the business and not on the business. So th th they haven't been strategic about anything. They've just grown organically and just taken the business that's come in, but it's never been controlled to the point where they're operating, uh, uh, they're, they're not making any money. And, you know, we all know it's pretty simple normally for that. It's either your operating costs are too high uh, or you're not got enough of a markup, right? So you're not making enough profit. In that case, it's both. <laughs> and so, but but this they would have continued like this until I'd actually said, all right, here's the PL, here's what's happening here. Graft it simplistically. And now what are we going to do about it? Because you guys are growing, but you're growing in the wrong way. You've uh, they 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 uh, during the riots. As you can imagine, being glaciers, their business kind of just exploded. But it 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 maintained because they got a new customer base and higher awareness. But they hadn't controlled it, and still are not controlling it. So it's another example of how not to do it. But it's also a way of hey, if you look at it the way I've just suggested, leaving the family thing alone for a second, but look at that operating costs. The margins, Craig, as you refer to, mm -hmm. and make that work for you. That's how you can turn that thing around. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Conversation Street. For more information or to submit a question, email successauthorities at inquire at successauthorities.com. <laughs>